0: If you'd open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's pray. Father heaven, as we bow before you this morning and as we continue our worship, our desire, Father, again, is to honor you in all that we do here as we gather this morning. As Father, we have acknowledged with a just a large amount of gratefulness, Lord. Again, the children that you give us, and in particular, Father, this year, the children you've given of the past recent years. We do pray for those families, Father. We ask you to remind us to pray for them often. Father, we have prayed together. We have read your word together. We have confessed our sins. Father, we have sung hymns to honor you and to remind ourselves and to speak out loud the truth of your word. Lord, we have given of our tithes and offerings as we desire, Father, to support the work of spreading the message of Christ. We thank you for that and ask, Lord, that you would bless the offering and give us wisdom to use the resources that you give us wisely. And the Father, we've come to the portion of our service where we have committed ourselves to the reading and the exposition of your word. Father, we ask that you would give me clarity of thought, that I would speak clearly and utter the words that. Uh, honor you in every way and that are faithful to the text. And that, Father, you enable all of us to be able to comprehend much more deeply, and better understand the message that is here. And that, Father, we would continue to be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus Christ, in every facet of our being. We do thank you, Father, again for the privilege we have to be able to gather together here to honor and to worship you. And We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians 12, and I'll begin reading in verse 11. Paul writes, I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. With signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were... Uh, You less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you. Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time, I am ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ And all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. So again, we are quite accustomed to it now over the many, many several weeks we have been going through this kind of defense that Paul has been throwing out there, really taking apart the events of what has been happening in this church recently, the things that have been said, and Paul's concern for these individuals. That again, as this group has moved in, seeking to demean Paul and kind of take over for him, where they want to be listened to, they want to be the authority. You know, these, basically these false teachers, they, they call themselves really, well, Paul calls them super apostles, which they're not. But Paul's concern all along has been how this has been affecting their walk with the Lord when it comes to the church as a whole. And so he, he has to continue, and he gets even more specific with some of the things that have been going on. So once again, he begins here with a statement of fact that should have enabled them to remain on the right path. And again, remember, the right path is not that they were just faithful to Paul, because Paul's not really concerned with that. He wants them to be faithful to God. But because he knows he's been faithful to God and what he taught them, that for them to so easily replace their allegiance to these false teachers has led them away from God. And again, not saying that he's God, but they've departed from the way. So he says this to them. He says that they were given the signs of a true apostle. The signs of a true apostle were performed among them. The signs of a true apostle, the word true has been added because it's not really in the the Greek text, but it's what Paul is emphasizing. But The miracles that he did among them, the signs and wonders that he performed, demonstrated to the Corinthians that Paul was a true apostle. In other words, he was doing things that it was clearly the evidence that God was putting his stamp of approval on Paul and his message. When we look at many of the miracles that were done in the New Testament, uh, many individuals agree with this fact that one of the main reasons that the apostles did miracles why they were able to perform these things was not to increase their following it was not to make them famous it was not to help them earn an extra buck because they could do miracles but the idea was was to show others that these men really were from god and that god was putting on them his stamp of approval and his stamp of approval on their message and so their message was genuine and true and they should listen to what they were saying and heed what they were saying Paul brings this out that he had done these miracles because he knows that these so-called super apostles hadn't done any of that. They they couldn't hold a candle to the things that Paul had done. Again, he says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. The the two words there were performed in the Greek language is what's called a divine passive, And when you look at the various books on language on the Greek text And what's going on here? Look at the commentaries that that delve into the Greek. They all will bring this out. And the divine passive indicates that Paul saw the signs that he did is not from himself, but from God. So it's another reason why the Corinthians should not have kept silent, but should have commended and defended him. Because Jesus' ministry, like Paul's, was authenticated by all kinds of miracles. So the clear implication, again, is that the false apostles had not been allowed by God to perform any authenticating signs. So this term, the divine passive, refers to the use of a Greek verb in the passive voice, which in context implies, and sometimes it will state directly, that the action or effect of the verb is produced by God. It's a divine production. And normally it implies that whatever's being done, the mighty wonder or the miracle, is being done by the Holy Spirit. It indicates that God is the doer, That God is the divine producer of the action or the effect that's described in the passage. So the divine passive is a very common thing in the New Testament. That shouldn't surprise us because we know that God is sovereign. That God is behind the scenes. He's in control of the scenes he is behind. That's why even when we are praying for someone who is, let's say, very ill, and even though they go to a doctor and maybe even have surgery and all of that is successful, And we're grateful for that we still thank god for what has taken place because we know that god is what is behind that we know that in surgery lots of things can go wrong you know we know that doctors are not perfect there are unforeseen things that can take place and and we also know that sometimes surgery or whatever is being done doesn't work we know that we are dependent upon god for all of these things and so we never assume we don't say well Man, those doctors are good. Good thing, because God wasn't in this. We don't don't think that way. We're grateful, even if the doctor is a non-believer. That is, in one sense, immaterial to what has happened in that person's life. And so we recognize that God is sovereign in all of these things. He is in control. And so as we read the scriptures, we should be alert to the divine passive, because it serves as a reminder and an encouragement that really no matter what we are experiencing personally, Our God, our mighty God is still on the throne and he is in control of every event in our life. So back to Paul then, that also indicates that the miracles that he did were of such a a wonder that it was clear he was not an illusionist. This was not a trick he was doing. These were things that the only explanation is this is something that God was doing. So that's a very powerful witness. That's a very powerful sign that that shows that this man is clearly from God because of the kinds of things that he did. And we know that was was the common thing wherever Paul went, whether it was in Lystra, which you see in Acts 14, uh, or to Ephesus, which you see in Acts 19, he was performing signs and wonders. And again, he was demonstrating to the people that it was his message that was important and that his message was approved by God. And Paul had done that with the Corinthians. And that should have been enough for the Corinthians to recognize his authority and the truthfulness of the message that he preached. But it also shows us something about the fickleness of human behavior, of human beings. And that is even when we see things that are clearly a demonstration of God, it just doesn't take long for that in a sense to fade. If we're not committed to Christ, if we're not committed in, in believing in Christ by faith and absorbing the Word of God on a regular basis, we can very easily turn away from any moment or answer to prayer that, is, that may be so dynamic, only God is the, is the clear uh, choice as to what has taken place, and yet we drift away. An experience will never be enough to bind you to living a life of holiness and pursuing God. It, it requires uh, the presence and the work of the Spirit of God in us, and as we pursue the spiritual disciplines, for us to stay on the path, and we need to remember that sometimes we do pray for others that there will, that something magnificent will happen that will cause the to turn to God, and that's not a bad thing for us to pray. But we need to remember that some unique or even amazing event is not always going to do the trick. Those experiences don't last real long. I've only been in one really bad car accident. I was glad I had my seatbelt on because the car at the end was upside down and I'm hanging like a bat in a cave. And that seatbelt, it worked. And after that moment, after that event, I never forgot to put on my seatbelt for about six months. And then after that, I'm just going to the store. And I just, I don't, you know, I don't click. I'm just going here. It just, it's human nature. Even though I, I, the nurse told me, the doctor told me, yeah, you would, you would most likely be dead if that wasn't the case. And that, you know, that'll kind of wake you up a little bit, you know, but it just doesn't last long. And we've seen events in the history of our country. You know, they talked about whatever happened on 9-11. People say, oh man, the churches will be full now. And they were for three or four weeks. They didn't even last as long as some of the critics thought it would last. Those just, they don't hold water. And that's what's happened to you. So Paul says, for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. For here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. Now, we, we went into detail about that last week, so we're not going to do that again. But again, we showed that Paul made sure that In in our language, not one penny of of their money ever went to support anything he did. Whatever he needed to support his ministry, whether it's for him to be able to eat or buy supplies, whatever, was, was fully funded by churches in other areas. And he was not a burden to them. And he used that as an example to prove to them that he was there for their benefit as compared to these false apostles who were trying to find ways to milk them of their money. Then Paul says this. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So, Paul is illustrating the point um, this way. He is speaking as a spiritual father to the Corinthians, and this statement conveys his deep care for them. Parents, of course, are to provide for their children, and as their spiritual father, Paul was not going to ask money from them. Now, as a side note, Paul is not saying that when children are grown, that they don't have to aid their aging parents. The parents are saving up for them. That's not what that's talking about. That the idea is when you have kids when you're younger. Uh, so, kids, when you get older, take care of your mom and dad. All right? Uh, but the idea here is, is that that's what we do. And, if, you know, I've, you've seen those graphs. or have seen these people, write say, well, if you have a kid today, it's going to cost you like $100,000 to do this and $100,000 to do that. I don't know if it really costs that much money, but it, it costs money. And, and more now. I mean, you got to feed them. you got to dress them. You know, there's, there's ways to, to kind of cut the cost, but it, it costs a lot of money. And, and there's sacrifice in that. I mean, there is. You, you may not think of it as sacrifice, but there's other things you're just not going to do because you got to spend your money over here. Now, normally don't complain about it because we want to do that for our kids. And that's what all that Paul is saying. He says he cares for them, he loves them, and, and whatever he's doing, he's spending it for them. And so he's not going to take a dime from them. In fact, he says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. We can give, and we do it in any number of ways. I guess the question we should ask is, do we resent doing it? Because that's really what he's getting at. He doesn't resent doing these things for them. He's not complaining about it. When we give, or when we serve others, or serve the Lord, do we resent it? I guess a good way to measure this is to see our reaction when our service is unappreciated. Do you resent it? Sometimes that can come out. We resent it. You know, and then we'll say, well, I'm only a human being. Yes, but you're a Christian. All right? it, may, it may hurt, it may bother us, but if we resent it, then are we really doing it for the Lord? And I'm convinced that sometimes you know, the, the Lord, he's, he'll test us. And sometimes you'll do maybe something extraordinary for others. And the Lord will arrange it so that they will not appreciate it, or maybe they won't say anything, just to kind of see where our attitude is. Or maybe to show us where our attitude is, because he already knows where it is. But here Paul is stressing with him that he's not, he doesn't resent doing all of these things. Now, it bothers him, but he doesn't resent doing it. Paul's service was unappreciated by the Corinthians, but again, he didn't resent it. Instead, as he said, he would gladly spend and be spent for their souls. In fact, he says, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? You see, the Corinthians responded to Paul's self-sacrificial love for them in a contrary manner. And so they were really prompting what's called the apostles' pathetic heart cry. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? The relationship was going backwards. The more affection he gave them, the less they returned. Paul had poured his life into this church he was laboring with great joy and sacrificing for them. Really all he wanted from them, he didn't want their money. He didn't want any of that. He, did, he just he wanted their love, and they were unwilling to give it because they were turning on him because of these individuals. Paul is a human being. You pour your life into others trying to do what you believe is best for them and helpful for them, giving of your time and your resources and all of that, and there's just zero appreciation Again, he's not saying, I wish I had never done that. I should have gone somewhere else. But it, it hurts him. Because he, he's, he's, we just kind of think that if we're loving others in that way, they're going to love us, I guess, a little bit. And he's not saying, because you're doing this, I'm not going to love you anymore. It's not of that. He is just recognizing the state of things. And where he is. And how all this is playing out. Again, he says, but... In verse 16, but granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Let me read you a paraphrase of that so you can kind of get the gist of what was going on. Remember we talked before about the fact that not only did he not take any money from them, he was collecting money from them for another church, you know, for the church in Jerusalem. And so he, he had gone through a lot of pains to make sure that um, everything was above board in the collecting of this money. Probably because he knew that there might be some accusations that he was siphoning some of that money off for himself. So the paraphrase reads this way. Some of you are saying, oh, it's true that his visits didn't seem to cost us anything, but he's a sneaky fellow. That, Paul, he fooled us. And as sure as anything, he must have had money, uh, made some money from us in some way. John MacArthur says this. To get around the glaringly obvious difficulty that Paul had not taken any money from the Corinthians, the false apostles insisted that he had not yet sprung sprung his trap. So now Paul had already described in detail the collection he was taking for the poor saints at Jerusalem, that according to the false apostles was the point of Paul's scheme. The money that was collected at Corinth would never reach Jerusalem. Instead, they claimed, it would go to line Paul's pockets. So, man, these guys are trying all kinds of ways to attack Paul. So that, And every time an obstacle that they see comes their way, once again revealing that Paul is above board and he's honest, he's not doing all these things, they go, oh, whoa, whoa, no, whoa, whoa, whoa. Anyway, he hasn't, it, it seemed like he didn't take any money from you, but he's pretty crafty. You know all that money you gave for the church in Jerusalem? How you wanted to help the poor that were there? Yeah, well, Paul's the one delivering that. What do you think happened to that money? And hey, we've seen through the years many other ministries and sometimes churches, they've gotten in trouble with that. Or they've collected money for something, you know, some orphanage or what have you. And, you know, a lot of that money gets skimmed off the top and goes to someone else. In fact, there's a, I don't know the name of it, but there was an orphanage in Haiti that was kind of well-known. Because there were 12 different ministries in America that were claiming to support that orphanage. And they would all raise money for that orphanage. And those 12 ministries combined probably raised several millions of dollars. But that money never reached the the orphanage. They had an agreement. And what it was is they would allow a ministry to use their name and likeness, take pictures of the kids, videos... And then these ministries would give them a stipend, and then whatever else they raise, they keep for themselves. And so that's how they did it. So they could then say, oh, yeah, we do send them money. We do support them. We have evidence of that. But it wouldn't match up to the millions. And that went on for years uh, before it began to become discovered as to what's going on. And so, again, Paul was the one who made sure that everything was above board so that even if the accusation was made, it would clearly never be able to be proved because it didn't take place. And so that's what was going on. So they were were serious in trying to really just destroy Paul's reputation in any way and clearly were willing to lie about these things. So again, in verse 16, Paul says, But granting that I myself did not burden you. I was crafty, you say, got the better of you by deceit. And so then he begins to ask the questions. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. We've mentioned this before. We don't know who this brother is, but apparently it's someone that they knew. He was well known and had a great reputation. And so Paul included this individual in all of this just to make sure that, again, everything was above board. He says, I urged Titus to go. I sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. So I don't really think that Paul is trying to make the Corinthians squirm, but he is trying to bring them to their senses by raising these issues. Basically, okay, so when Titus came with his brother for the money, did Titus take advantage of you? What did he do that, that proves to you or shows you or maybe even hints that something funny was going on with the money? And of course, nothing had ever been said. Nothing was ever recognized. And so, again, Paul brings out these facts about all of this. You see, Paul wants them to get rid of, really, I guess you could call it this way. I saw this in one of the commentaries I was reading. He says, Paul wants to help them rid themselves of the narcotic effect that's produced by these false apostles who had invaded their community. These guys were persuasive. Remember remember we are susceptible to those things. That's why it's important for us to stay in the word and to continue to pray and seek the Lord and pray for each other. Why why we need to live openly before each other. These things are important. In fact Paul says in verse 20, for I fear that perhaps when I come I may not find you as I wish. What he means by that is to find them growing as strong believers in Jesus Christ. That's what his concern is. And he says, I, I'm not going to find that. He says, and you may not find me as you wish. And then he says, perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. You know, there's a very similar list to that. It's over in the book of Galatians. Turn there for just a moment. Galatians 5. I'm going to read that to you. And while you're turning there out, what do you think of these things? So, to, so what's taking place then is that with these false apostles, their effect on the congregation is not just in turning their allegiance away from Paul, but ultimately away from God and from continuing to grow to mature as believers. So the detrimental effect on them spiritually is this. He, he, Paul's afraid that when he comes, this is gonna be what he's gonna find. That there's, there are these arguments, there's jealousy, there are people who are angry, there's hostility and slander going on and gossip, which has already been going on, he's already been dealing with that. There's conceit and arrogance, and then just disorder. Galatians 5, beginning verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. So we'll stop right there. That's what's going on. When you, when you move away from pursuing God and pursuing the solid, sound teaching that Paul had been giving them... You are now living in the flesh, depending on the flesh, solving whatever problems you think there are in the flesh, and as a result of that, you're you're drifting from the Lord, and this is the natural result of that. We fight sin in our bodies. That's why we confess our sins, and when we gather together, to remind ourselves of the weakness of the flesh, and how easily we can succumb to this. And so what does he say? What are the works of the flesh? faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And that last verse there, it once again, sums up what's been going on here in this church in Corinth. Is, this is, this is They've become conceited. There's been this arrogance, we're better than you because we have this. We're better than you because we do this, or we've experienced that. Uh, There's been this provoking each other, kind of, you know, poking the bear kind of a thing. You know, being irritating to each other, along along with being envious of each other. So that leads then to Paul saying this to them. He says, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. And I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. You know, those are some strong statements. And I, we don't know all the particulars. We know of one case in this church. But we know that in this church, they did put up and tolerate with the sexual sin of at least one of their members. And one that, that Paul says, this, this is so abhorrent that basically flaming pagans recognize that. And you folks are just kind of like giving a nod of approval. But it does seem that there was more going on than just that one incident. And, you know, it's amazing, very sad. We've seen this again in many different ministries and churches. When they begin to go and drift from the Lord, when there's no accountability, a lot of different things, there's usually money involved and something sensual. We get lax and... People begin to take advantage of each other and exploit each other and and it's it's where it goes. It continues to go in that direction. That's why we have to be diligent because that kind of thing destroys people, destroys relationships, destroys churches, destroys ministries and destroys the reputation of God. It does. And we, we should never think that any of us are above that. We need to begin with the fact that we are in the flesh we are weak, and we don't want to find out how strong we are in resisting sin. Just doesn't want to go there. I'm just going to assume I'm not going to fare well. That's what I'm going to assume. And we need to make sure that we, ha- we have that. We've got to have that. We've got to do that. It's not demeaning. You now, if all of a sudden someone wants to go somewhere, we say, well, you should have someone go with you. We should not be thinking, well, you don't trust me? Eh, that's not really the question. But if you want to push it, No. You You just want to cut to the chase right away. We just we don't want to be in that position. And then, of course, we already know this is how bad is it when there's just a false accusation made. It destroys so many things. And so we work to make sure that we're not in that situation, that even if there is a false accusation, it cannot be substantiated. Because we love Christ and we don't want to see these things destroyed. When Paul says, when I come again, it assumes, again, that this is true. He's going to come again to Corinth. He's going to come a third time. And and he expresses his sincere fear. But there's a a phrase he uses that we should ask ourselves, what does he mean by this? Why would Paul be humiliated? You see, Paul saw himself as a spiritual father and their teacher for over 18 months. He only wanted to see them practice what he had taught. If they were manifesting the litany of sins that we see in verses 20 and 21... Paul would be ashamed. It would give his critics ammunition to substantiate their charges. If his spiritual children were in sin, it would allow his opponents to question the efficacy of his teaching. In the same way that mom and dad, if our older teenage children or adults, if even as adults, if they begin to act in a way that's contrary to the word of God, doesn't that make you look a little bad? It does. People think, well, I mean, I thought he was raised in a Christian home. I, I mean, this this doesn't compute. Now, again, it doesn't mean that just because you see that it automatically means that mom and dad were hypocrites at home. What I'm trying to get at is mom and dad do feel a sense of, of humiliation when their children, at whatever age, misbehave in public. That's normal. And Paul says, "Yeah, you know, I've done all these things for you, and if I come and find this, it's It's humiliating. People are like, well, what was Paul teaching them? Did he teach them anything? I mean, he was there for 18 months. What was he doing, just going to ball games and having a good time? I mean, what was happening? I mean, that's kind of the idea. And again, Paul's not overly concerned that people will think bad about him. But he is tying it into, again, his love for them and his desire to see them do well. And so, kids, yes, it's true. Your parents do want to look good in front of others, and so you need to behave. That's life. It's not a bad thing. And if we love our mom and dad, we want others to think well of them. And guess what's the easiest way to make that happen? Behave in public. So if you want to act like a demon, do it at home. No. <laughs> but the idea is, is that, that, that's, the, that, that, that's what he's getting at here. And so he he wants to express this to them because he is, going back to this relationship that he has with them, and this idea that we want to also, we want to do well because we love God, but we also want to do well because we love each other. That that, that relationship is important. That's what Paul is getting at. J. Vernon McGee says this, Paul is fearful that those he addressed as saints are not acting like saints. They're acting more like ants, manifesting rotten fruits that characterize their former pagan lives. Now, if I could do J. Bernie McGee's voice, you'd understand that statement much better because of uh, that accent that he had. But the bottom line is, is that's really what Paul's getting at. So what he's getting on is their very poor spiritual performance. He wants them to know that their spiritual performance its poor because their relationship with the Lord has been negatively affected by the influence of these men. As human beings, we are influenced by other people. And that's why we are warned in the Bible to make sure we're careful who we choose to be our friends, who we hang out with, and even the churches that we attend and, be- and become a part of. And why we as a church need to pay attention to each other's lives. Not because we want to be nosy. Not because we want to, you know, have control over anybody. There's, there's, no, there's no control in that. But we do want to hold each other accountable. Why, would it, why is it a bad thing? that you want to make sure that I live my life and that I'm faithful to my wife. Is that a bad thing? If you love me and you love my wife, you want that to be the case. Are we being nosy because I want to make sure that that you're not hanging out with with the wrong crowd and that you're paying attention to your family the way you should? That's not being controlling. That's just simply dealing with what we know to be right and proper. And so sometimes we do stick our nose into each other's business. But we do it because we love each other, because we love the family, the whole unit. And maybe if that's a little embarrassing to one person, well, sometimes that can't be helped. But the Bible, again, even tells us how to do that. What's the first thing you do? Go to them in private. You give them that opportunity. Say, brother, man, I don't know what you're doing, but I know you're out a lot at night, and you're not working, and you have a wife and you have kids. Something's wrong somewhere. You shouldn't be doing that. Uh, that, that's what we do. If, if you want to say we're being nosy, then so be it. All right? but, but that's we're doing it the right way because we love. And that's what Paul is getting at. So if we see a poor spiritual performance taking place in someone's life, begin to pray for them. Pray for them and their family diligently. If perhaps it, you are in, in some kind of a relationship with that individual and you have the, the ability, uh, maybe you have the, Uh, The wherewithal to be able to speak to them about it, then go ahead and do so. Just ask them some questions. Let them know you're praying for them. Let them know that somebody's watching. And and see how they respond. Because the goal is to get them to come to their senses. And that's what Paul is doing. He wants them to come to their senses before this church is destroyed. They may still meet on Sundays, but they will have no power, no authority, and no witness for the Lord. And he doesn't want to see that happen. And they themselves... We'll be living in misery let's pray father in heaven we thank you again for your word and for the teaching of scripture we pray lord that that we would have a great love for each other that we would desire really what is best for each other all the time that father will we'll be able to do so in a way that's loving and kind and gracious i pray lord that each of us as individuals will desire accountability because we know that we are weak in the flesh Pray, Lord, that you would uh, prevent us from having the kind of problems that some churches have had, where some churches have had a lot of this, and where we can clearly see that Corinth was having that problem. Not, Lord, that we're a perfect church, because we'll never be that, but, Father, one that is at least striving with their whole heart, mind, and soul to please and to honor you and to help each other, to encourage each other, to grow in the love and the faith and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. the Father, we may see all of us together flourishing spiritually and in every other way. The Father, we, as always, we want to pray for those who may be here this morning, but they're outside the family. They, they've not committed themselves to Christ. They either refuse to admit that they are a sinner in need of Christ or something of that nature, and they're holding back. Pray, Lord, that by your spirit you will convict them that they need Christ, that like us, we are needy people, and we are dependent upon the Lord, not that we are arrogant people and that we know better than others because we don't. In fact, everything we know, we know because you taught us, not because we knew it in and of ourselves. So, Father, we pray for those who do not yet know Christ, and we ask, Lord, that we'll be an encouragement to them as well, and that, Father, we won't stand in the way of them believing in Christ. Father, again, we thank you for your great patience with us and for the many wonderful blessings that you've bestowed upon us. Help us, Father, to be faithful and that you'll find us faithful when you come. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.